Let's begin our time this communion morning once again by bowing our heads and asking God to open our hearts and minds to understand His Word. Father, we need You. We are dependent upon You for all things. We are grateful for the privilege to be able to come to You. Lord, we of all people, undeserve it as we are, yet instruments of Your grace entering into Your very throne room through our Savior Jesus Christ to be able to talk to You and have You hear us and attend to us. Lord, we are dependent upon You for everything we need and the Holy Spirit has been given to us that we might have Your Word illumined in our hearts and our minds Accomplish that in us this day as we look at your truth for the glory of your name and the good of our lives that we might reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. This is what we've been doing over the last few weeks. Prayer It's what we have been studying about over at least the last two weeks. We have done some of that even in our evening service in the book of Ephesians some weeks ago, and so we want to do that again this morning, so I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them with me to Luke chapter 11. If you're not there already, Luke chapter 11, two weeks ago, we began a study of just the first 13 verses of this chapter, and I want to finish that up today by God's grace. We'll accomplish that. You remember that Jesus is teaching His disciples about prayer. He's doing that because one of His followers asked Him to do so. It was one of those occasions where we get this question posed to Jesus Christ by those who are following Him in which He's asking for teaching to be done. And in teaching them to pray, what we have learned, at least thus far, is that while Many within the evangelical world believe this is a prayer to pray. These are words that we are to say to God, some would say. And for centuries that has been repeated millions of times as some kind of religious ritual prayer. What we have here from our Lord is actually not something that we ought to be praying per se, but really the structure for any prayer. The structure for any prayer. That structure begins, as we have seen over the last two weeks, it begins vertically. What do I mean? I mean it begins with our talking to God, our understanding that God is our Father. God is our Father. You see that there in verse 2. When you pray, say, Father. And in doing so, in approaching God in that way, as our Father, we are Asking in His name along with that, that His name be held as holy. Father, hallowed be Your name. In other words, His name is to be holy, not only in our own hearts and thereby by how we live as we think about God and as we approach Him in our own life, but as well as in the hearts of all men, that God would be seen in an ultimate sense and in an ultimate way. In other words, that the final end would come where God is held holy as He is in all the hearts of men. 
The Apostle Paul says in Philippians that there is coming a day when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, everyone, no matter believer or unbeliever, one day will proclaim Jesus Christ for who He is, and it will all give God glory. We will all be hallowing the name of God. Then Jesus says that His kingdom also would rule. Your kingdom would come. That His rule in the people and in the places of this world would be the rule of the day. Certainly we don't see that in a practical sense in every way, particularly in our world, but it ought to be the case and it ought to be the norm in everyone who proclaims to know Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God ought to be ruling in us. And so it starts out vertically with this reality of our relationship with God. And then Jesus instructs us also to think horizontally or on the level plane of humanity about our fellow man. And we pray that God structurally in our own mind, this prayer is that structure, we pray that God would provide us with what we need each day. Give us each day our daily bread or as... I said last Lord's Day, some of your translations, if you have an older version of some earliest translation, may say the bread of tomorrow. Give us what we need, not just for today. Give us concern concerning that which we need for each day. And we, we understood that to mean both spiritually and physical needs. Of course, as believers, on a spiritual sense, God has given us as Second Peter says, everything we need for life and godliness. We lack nothing. We have all of the Holy Spirit we will ever need. You don't need any more blessings of the Holy Spirit. You need to have the Word of God saturating you. In other words, being filled with what the Holy Spirit leads us in, which is all truth, which is the Word of God. So God has given to us what we need, and we pray that he continues to do so. And then for God, obviously here to forgive us our sins. I was talking this morning with a few guys about this reality. Forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Even in that request to God, we are asking God in the sense that if he forgives us according to our sins, he's forgiving us in in such a sense that is inadequate for all forgiveness, right? God forgives perfectly. Our forgiveness is never perfect. And so even when we ask God for forgiveness of our sins, He graciously forgives us according to Himself, even though we can only forgive in light of who we are and in light of how Jesus Christ forgives us. We are equipped by the Spirit to forgive. And yet even in that sense, the taintedness of our sinfulness still affects it. And then... We're instructed here to give us strength needed to persevere, right? This perseverance and lead us not into temptation. Persevere. Persevere through whatever temptations there are that are allowed to come. Remember we talked about food, forgiveness, and fortitude. That was last Lord's Day. All of those components, all of them, both vertically and and horizontally, challenge us in our own prayer lives. Because we think about our own prayer lives, we are examining our own hearts. We're examining our hearts before God, our own lives before God, and and we're doing a self-evaluation about how we interact with God and how we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ and even those of the world. And I trust that 
that we've been praying differently than maybe we used to pray. Maybe this has affected our prayer lives each day. And with all of that then on our hearts as we pray, I, I can't help but think about God answering prayer. I think last week I ended with that question, but what is our expectation about God answering prayer? I was studying through this and even thinking about it a few weeks ago. This was continuing on my mind. God answering prayer and the expectation or the lack of expectation that we have that He will or even does answer prayer. In other words, what is the expectancy and what is the attitudes that are here included in prayer? Well, I think Jesus answers that in these verses that we have before us today. In beginning in verse 5 and then going down through the end of the chapter, verse 13, I think Jesus gives us the answer. And I want to I break it down into five different parts. Five different parts. Now, I'll just list them for us and, and I'll try to not read them as fast as you can write them down if you'd like. But first, Jesus begins with a story. He begins with a story, and it's corresponding to prayer. It's in light of what he has just said in verses 2 through 4. So it's corresponding to prayer, and that story is contained in verses 5 through 7. Some call it a parable. I don't think it's a parable. I think it's just a story that Jesus brings up by way of illustration. Then two, Jesus declares the aim in prayer. The aim, verse 8. This is the aim in our prayers, and you might be surprised at what it is telling us. And then three, Jesus shares an assurance, an assurance with prayer, verses 9 and 10. Then Jesus describes an attitude throughout prayer, an attitude throughout prayer in verses 11 and 12. And then Jesus gives an assertion, an assertion in prayer. Verse 13. So we have a story, we have an aim, we have an assurance, we have an attitude, and we have an assertion. These are the five ways, five parts that I kind of just have broken this down for us so that we can kind of get a grasp on what's going on here. Let's just simply begin with a story. Verses 5 through 7 says this He said to them, of course, this comes on the heels of, of the structure of prayer that he just taught. He said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend. And goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot go up and give you anything. You can stop there. That that's the story. It's, it's a story in a nutshell. There's a lot we could fill in. It begins with two friends. Right? It's a, it's a story that, that is a question. Suppose one of you has a friend. Not so unusual. Many of us have friends. Most of us, if not everybody, at least has one friend. And so we can identify immediately with this story. All of those Jesus was teaching could immediately identify with this, especially those who lived in the ancient world in which we are looking at here 
as people were very dependent upon each other for the needs of every day. It, it, it wasn't like the world in which we live. We, can, we need a whole lot of people. In some senses, we have Super Walmart. You can just get in your chariot and run down to Super Walmart and get whatever you need. Walmart usually has it or some other store around the corner. You can get everything you need for a day. You can get everything you need for a week, for a month, for whatever time you want. You can stay pretty isolated. They didn't have that. They didn't have Super Walmart around the corner where they could get everything they need. They couldn't stay isolated. Interaction was necessary. And so the one friend goes to another friend and it says at midnight he goes. At midnight, probably not the best time to go. At least if you think about cordialness. Even during our day, of modern conveniences, normal people are doing what this friend was doing when his friend came to the door. He was in bed. He's with his family, already in the house. The house is locked. It's nighttime. They're all in bed. <clears throat> normal, normally, that's what's happening. But it's interesting because the other friend has a need. The other friend has a need. Someone's come to him at night to stay at his home. Hospitality is necessary. He, he wants to show hospitality to this friend. And so he has a conundrum going on. Either he can be inhospitable to this friend that he goes to, or, or the friend that has come to him, or he can go and bother his other friend. That's the conundrum. He's in. Obviously, he chooses the latter. And we can read about the rather obvious response that he was given. <clears throat> From inside, verse 7, he answers and says, Do not bother me. Why? The door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. That's the story. That's the scenario. That's the illustration that Jesus is using to set forth the reality of expectation when it comes to praying to our Father. Suppose you have a friend. And so Jesus, from the story then, interjects and declares the aim. The aim in praying. You notice what he says, verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, if you want to know the point of the entire message this morning, that's the point. Verse 8. Verse 8. Despite all of the initial refusals, from the friend to get up and get him what is being asked of him. In the end, Jesus says the man in the house realizes that talking through the wall is not going to do him any good. He can continue to say to his friend, listen, friend, I can't get up. My, my door's locked. My children are in bed. You're disturbing us. We can't do it. He realizes in some sense here that Talking in that way isn't going to do him good and that his family is going to be disturbed either way. And Jesus says, because of his, New American Standard says, persistence. Persistence. The man inside finally gives him what 
is desired. He needs bread, just three small loaves. They're usually this little biscuits, really, is what he was asking for. But the idea here is persistence. Persistence, some of your translations might say shamelessness. Shamelessness or impudence is another word that was used as a translation. You say, why? Why shamelessness? Because that is what the original language word means. Uh, persistence is an, is, the, is an overarching reality, but shamelessness is really what's going on. It's not shamefulness, it's shamelessness. When we think of someone being shameless, we don't normally think of it as a good quality, at least when that name comes out. And yet here, that is exactly what it is. It is a good quality. Why? Because his shameless insistence is for something good. In other words, his insistence was to be praised. Jesus is highlighting the reality of his persistence. This is why his persistence got an answer. And so what is Jesus really driving at? He is saying, listen, listen, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater here. If, if an impatient friend can be coerced by another friend's shameless persistence to give what is, at least in the big picture, something very small, something very insignificant, then how much more will our loving Father, our loving God, respond to our shameless persistence for what we actually need? This is the idea. This is what Jesus is saying. If, if in this little scenario, in this little illustration, you see that this man in his continual asking, in his continual going, in his shameless persistence gets exactly what the friend needs, even though that friend didn't want to do it, he does it out of reluctance, how much more do you think God's going to do that for you? Sometimes we don't think about prayer like that. Sometimes we go to God as with a great wish list and we just throw things out there and in one sense walk away with this sense of hope that maybe, maybe if God feels right today, He'll answer my prayer. Jesus is saying, no. No, you don't go to God in prayer like that. You go to the Father with this shameless persistence. Shameless persistence. So Jesus just simply shares the illustration. The people are gathering and they're saying, wow, uh, I can't believe that would happen. And maybe they've even interacted in that kind of way with friends themselves and had the same thing happen. And Jesus saying in that kind of way, in that shameless persistence, you go and you ask God. That's the story. The declared aim is that persistence that we are to have. You say, well, how does that assure us of anything? Well, verses 9 and 10 give us that. Jesus shares an assurance. So he says, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Because everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, 
it will be opened. In other words, have a confidence in your persistence in prayer. Have a confidence. You go to God and pray, and you pray, Father, here's the things that I... I need to pray about with you today. Here's what I'm coming to you with my, that's on my heart. Here's the things that I, I want to ask. You come with this confidence in your persistence in prayer before God. You notice that Jesus lists here three verbs. Three verbs, three action words. Seek, knock, ask. All of these are commands. They're not suggestions. They're commands to us. All of them are in the sense and in the verb tense that can carry a continualness to them. In other words, they're not one-time acts. They are continual realities. In other words, keep asking, continue seeking, and don't stop knocking. That's the idea. So when you go to God in prayer, don't just go and then throw up your hands and go, okay, I hope so. No, you keep going. You go to God, keep asking, you keep you continue to seek, you continue to knock. The idea is an ever-increasing reality. They are continuous, and each one is ascending, if you will, in intensity. In other words, to ask implies that we are making a request, right? We go and we ask. There's a dependent attitude involved in there. There is the idea in which we go to God because we are dependent upon God and we ask God and we continue to ask God. We are making a request for a conscious need. We have a friend that we're praying for. We have someone who's come to us. Whatever it is, just like in the story, we are going to God because we have a conscious need. And from that asking then flows from a heart of a, of a humble dependence upon the one who is the giver, which is God himself, the only one who could provide it. And then from that, we seek. We seek. In other words, it intensifies the request. Why? Because to ask is to verbally make the request, but to seek adds action to the request. It adds action to the request. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean the idea is not just to speak our need. The idea is to also look for the help. Look for the help. In other words, you don't just go to God and say, hey God, I, I have this need. Let me, let me ask you for it. Certainly God can supply that, but God's desire in our life is not just to sit there like a bump on a log and wait for the, the wish machine to start opening up. God wants us to not only seek for that, but when you think about it, particularly on a spiritual need, you are wanting to you're reading a passage, you're asking God to open your mind and your eyes to, to understand the passage, and yet you're seeking understanding. You're, you're asking God to help you with that, but you also seek help from others who understand that, who have been illumined already on a passage. You, you go to others who, who are discipling you, some who are in your Christian life, who are with you and discipling you and walking through things, trusted mentors, trusted friends, even authors that you know and you trust. You ask, you seek, and then Jesus says, knock implying that you do not stop asking, you do not stop seeking, but you persevere in it, like someone who just keeps pounding on the door. You don't stop. You don't throw up your hands and give up. You go. 
And so you notice there is this crescendoing, if you will, of the words. An unending confidence that does not quit. Much like Jacob wrestling with God in the Old Testament until God answered his prayer. You see, I think this, this really speaks to the heart of prayer because if we really believe God answers prayer, if we really believe God is the one who can do what we ask, then we will continue to ask, will we not? Dr. Erwin Lutzer said years ago, I remember hearing him say, if we actually believed in prayer, we would actually be together praying. I think it's true. Those who pray with that focus can have the assurance that God will answer. Why? Because they are asking without selfish requests. They're asking, they're seeking, they're knocking. And so really, Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray with faith. Pray out of faith. Pray out of trust. Entrusting in the Heavenly Father. Believing and entrusting in the one who answers prayer. Because, he says, verse 10, everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. He isn't saying, hey, listen, when you pray to God, go ahead and ask for anything that you have ever wanted. He's not saying that. He's not saying this is a carte blanche that just is like an open checkbook for you. As long as you ask and seek and knock, then it'll come to you. No, whatever you want. No, he's not saying that. Why? Because God is the focus of true prayer, isn't he? Isn't that how this prayer begins? Father, it's, it's vertical. It's, it's, it's thinking of who God is and thinking of His holiness, His name, His rulership. It's out of a heart that understands who I'm praying to and what His character and nature is and, the, and, and how I am to be living in light of Him. And so if my heart is focused on that kind of reality, then my requests are never going to be selfish. They're never going to come out of a heart that says, hey, oh yeah, I, I know you're God. I know you're my father. I know you're holy. I know you're righteous and I know you need to rule. But by the way, hey, listen, I really would like A, B, and C. Fulfill my every desire that I ever wanted. No. Even James chapter 4 verse 2 says you do not have because you do not ask. So there's the first thing, right? You don't have because you don't ask, right? Jesus says, the one who asks receives. So James starts out there. You don't have because you do not ask. But then he includes further. James 4.2 goes on to say, you ask and you don't receive. So you don't have because you don't ask. And even when you do ask, you don't receive. Why? Because you ask with the wrong motives. You ask so that you might spend it on your own pleasures. You ask so that God, as if God's some celestial genie that gives you everything you ever wanted because he's your father. Jesus says it doesn't work like that. Jesus says pray, yes, go to God. He, he is your father. He wants your best. He always does what is right for you. Go to your father and be assured that God will answer. Be assured that God will answer. Have a right heart in prayer. And be assured that God will answer. And so God, Jesus lays out this story for us. 
teach these people just how they are to pray. And then fourthly, he describes the attitude or an attitude in prayer. Notice verse 11 and 12. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he'll not give him a scorpion, will he? It's a, it's a logical question. What father among you? This is an attitude that we're to have in prayer. And yet it's not necessarily fully our attitude, but this is even God's attitude toward us as we pray. He's talking really about God and how God hears our prayers. He went from the lesser to the greater before. Now he does it again from the lesser to the greater. What father among you? That's the lesser. That's us. What one among you even as fallen human beings? The lesser fathers. We who are human, which of you, which one of us, if our children comes to us and makes a request for us to fulfill a need, they ask for a fish, they're hungry, they want some food, which one of us will actually give them a snake? Or if they ask for an egg, which will give them a scorpion? In other words, as people, as just fallen humanity, when we are asked of something by one of our own family, or even with a generous heart for others, when we are asked, we don't give them something contrary to what that is. And on top of that, we certainly don't give them something that will be dangerous for them. We don't give them things that will harm them for their detriment. Well, this is how we must think of God. God is our loving Father. For him to do that would be ridiculous. Certainly in our world, there are those who are cruel in this world. They might in fact do that. But the norm is parents who actually love their kids. Their kids ask them for something they need. They fulfill that need and at least try to with every effort. Jesus is saying, when we ask God... Our attitude needs to be thinking of God in that way. How much more will God's attitude be toward us? There will be no evil in it whatsoever. So not only can we go to God and we ought to go to God with that shameless persistence and continuing to go and, and always knowing that we can go because He is our Father, but we need to continue to ask. We need to have that persistence with Him and go with our real needs, with a heart open and understanding that it isn't for me and my selfish desires, but for the acknowledgement of who He is and His righteousness and all that He has shown us by His very character and nature and that He supplies what is best for us. For whatever He is giving to us is not for our hurt, not for our harm. In our fallenness, we can do humanly good things for one another. How much more will the one who is able to do what is perfectly good do for us when we ask Him? You say, well, why would he do that? Because his love is perfect. He loves us perfectly. 
In other words, that idea takes us back again to what he said in verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. God will give us what is needed and what is for our good. That means that there are times that what we think we need is not what we actually need. And while we may go with God with persistence about an implied need in our own hearts, it may not be the actual need. God doesn't supply it for us because God always and only does what is good for us and that which would glorify himself. So sometimes in the reception of God answering prayer, it is an answer that says you don't need that. And so we think we're not receiving, and God is saying, no, you are receiving. You're receiving that which I find best for you. It's much like prayer, much like Paul in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians when he's telling the Corinthian church, I, I had this thorn in the flesh, this thing that was just hounding the ministry and continuing to give me trouble throughout the ministry, and I went to God three times. I continued asking God, remove this thorn from me. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. What you need to know is that the reality in which you're living, in which this is in your life, is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. You don't need to have it removed. And so Paul says, so I'd rather boast in my weakness then. I'll just thank God for what he's giving you. And so the attitude of love is in place here. And if we can love our own children as fallen and sinful people, then we can certainly know, we can certainly have the assurance that our Heavenly Father's care for us and His commitment to meet our every need is intact. And so we can ask with assurance. We can ask with assurance. You say, well, how does that all settle for me? How how is that proof that I can just rest in what God says. Well, the fifth answer that Jesus gives should settle the whole thing. Because Jesus gives an assertion. An assertion. In other words, it's all based on this. Here's the story. You ought to consistently and shamelessly persist. You ought to do it without fail. God's attitude in this is love for you. He cares for you like no one else. And you can be assured of that. Here's the assertion, verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So This is the assertion upon which everything rests. And it's really tied to the point before. God is our Father, and as our Father, He knows what is good for us. Bottom line, he knows what's best, we do not. And so in giving us what is good, he gives us what is best. God is our Father, he gives us what is best. As I, I read this morning in Psalm 84, I, I usually, when I'm, when I'm come to a text, I'm, I'm trying to, to relay our scripture reading to something in their text. Psalm 84, verse 11 said this, No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
So Jesus ends by promising that our Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. You say, but Pastor, don't we have the Holy Spirit? Yes, we do. I find this interesting. I find this an interesting way to close. But the reality is that the only source of all blessings is the one who lives in us, is it not? The Holy Spirit. He's the source of all of our blessing. God not only gives us what is good, God gives us and has given to us the source of all goodness. The Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. And so when we pray, we pray for what is needed most. This is what we learned in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Pray this way, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Paul said, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I think this is exactly what Jesus is saying. You'll give good gifts to your own children. You'll give them what is best for you. Isn't it not true of God that when we're praying and we're praying for what is best, we're praying for what God would give us, that God would would give us what is good for, for us and for His glory. And is it not true that we're praying exactly what the Apostle Paul prays, that we may may have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. Jesus says, listen, your heavenly Father will give you that when you ask. Seems to me that praying is more about God than it is about us. Seems to me that when we pray, we acknowledge God as Father and Holy and Ruler God is the beneficent one who gives to us that which we need, not just for today, but every day. The one in whom we find forgiveness, not just for today, but for all eternity. The one in whom we have and through whom we have the power to persevere in all of life's temptations. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit. Because God, through Jesus Christ, has given to us exactly what we asked of Him. He has been and will continue to be that good Father who gives to us just what we need. We pray for what is needed most, not necessarily the things of this world, but the things of our spiritual life, that we might grow in the wisdom of God and the revelation in knowing Him. in all of our praying, the greatest gift is the Holy Spirit. Praying is less about us and more about God. And so we pray, and we pray shamelessly, shamelessly, persistently, confidently, and expectantly. We pray knowing that our Father loves and cares for us that He has given to us the best answer of all. He has given us the Holy Spirit. Everything that He gives is good. And He is able to do 
far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Paul says how? According to the power that works within us. God will do, can do, abundantly more than anything we ask or think according to the Holy Spirit which He has already granted to us. What a blessed people we are. Is it any wonder that on the heels of this, Luke records the blasphemy of the Pharisees? That they begin to blaspheme Jesus, which really is a blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that either next time or some other time. I'm not sure, but we'll get to it. Anyway. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for our time around the communion table. Father, thank you for your grace. Your grace in moving us through this passage that at least on the surface seems rather complicated and yet in many ways simpler than we might have thought. What a privilege it is to be able to learn from you. That you, by your grace and mercy, would allow us to, to learn well, it's always an, an unfathomable fact of your mercy that you that you would condescend to us that we might know you. Mere mortals, if you will. Those of creation. And that we have a relationship with the Creator, you, who, who allows us because of your mercy in your Son, Jesus Christ, bestowed to us through the power of your Spirit, making us alive, we can come to you and talk to you as we are right now. And you hear us. You hear our prayers, not just as noise, but as words of which you desire to answer. And so, Lord, attend to our prayers. And cause us to have greater understanding in wisdom and in the revelation of knowing you. So that we might live as we ought, like Jesus Christ, here and now. Praising you for all that you have done with us, even if the earthly things we do not receive here and now because in your goodness you withhold them from us. And praise you for all that you do for us in every way, to the glory of your name, to the praise of our Savior Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.